If you're able, you remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're turning to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 as we continue in our series on the first year of the life of Christ. There should be 19 sermons on this series, and we're going to do morning and afternoon. Just work our way through that way. Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 1, reading through verse 6. This is the word of our Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins." This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you uh, that you've given us your word. We pray that your spirit would grab hold of your word and apply it to our hearts this morning for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I forgot to tell my helper that I won't need her help today. So you can relax. I had planned an illustration that it just didn't come through, so... John the Baptist and Jesus are eternally, eternally united in their proclamation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John's first message, first sermon. It was Jesus' first sermon as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As I said earlier, we're studying the first year of Jesus' ministry with John's ministry in a way so connected with Jesus' ministry that you can't study one without the other. Uh, John's ministry really set up what Jesus is going to do, so that's why we're spending a couple of lessons on this and transitioning next week, Lord willing, as we see uh, John's testimony of Jesus and Jesus' baptism next Lord's Day. So we begin studying the ministry of Jesus by actually considering John the baptizer. We saw last week that Jesus had a three-year public ministry, likely starting in A.D. 26, and we went through the reasons why Jesus was born before Christ. And you can listen to that lesson to uh, remember if you haven't, if you if you weren't, if you don't remember the reasons. Um, we know we know this chronology of Jesus' life primarily because of the Passovers in the Gospel of John. He gives us enough where we have to have three years of public ministry there. So that being the case, what we're reading here in, about John happened in the spring of A.D. 26, with Jesus' ministry starting um, officially six months later with his baptism, so in the fall of A.D. 26, and uh, with the crucifixion happening in the spring of A.D. 30. Now, does anybody remember what A.D. stands for? What's that, Eli? Oh, after death. Not after death, no. 
Uh, anu Domini, right? The year of the Lord. Uh, that's, that's what it stands for. And this year that we're studying is an year of obscurity. Uh, we, we tend to think that uh, the ministry of Jesus started with the Sermon on the Mount. But that's the beginning of his second year of ministry. He's been already in the public for about a year. So a lot of what we're going to be considering during this series is going to be in the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 4, where he has an early Judean ministry, where he's flying under the radar, and eventually he becomes so popular that he has to flee Judea because, um, for his life. And what we read in Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is mostly what happens while he's in Galilee for that second year of ministry. Now, these dates are not absolutes. Scholars will move them a little bit earlier and a little bit later, but most scholars are agreed that this is the general time in which Jesus ministered to the people publicly. And as, as we go through this series, I will try to point out evidence that demonstrates how accurate and reliable the gospel are. Every time I find an opportunity to do that, I wanted to share with you how we can really trust and that how this is super accurate as far as we can check, more accurate than any other historical record that we have. And it is indeed a historical record of what actually took place 2,000 years ago. What we read in the Gospel according to Matthew is also in recording the Gospel according to Luke. But Luke gives us less detail about John, what John was doing, but Luke gives us a whole lot more detail about when John was doing whatever it was that he was doing. So if you can put your finger there in Matthew 3 or whatever way you can keep that place and go to Luke chapter 3 for a moment. You all remember Tim Prusik? Some of you remember Tim Prusik when he was a member here. He used to get, uh, his heart would really hurt when he would go to Pastor Lehman's office and Pastor Lehman was using the desk as a bookmarker with a book like this because it would break the binds of the bindings of the book. So don't use the pews, use your finger or a piece of paper to mark there Matthew 3 and go to Luke chapter 3. If you, if you remember Matthew 3, it starts by saying, in, the, in those days these things happen. Luke gives a whole lot more precision to what was going on during the time of John's baptism. If you look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 3, it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the Lord, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. All that fit in Matthew's in those days. That's, that's the, the, the expanding of what Matthew said in those days. Did you notice all these civil rulers and these territories that are clearly identified in Luke? You have the uh, Tiberius, you have Pontius Pilate, you have Herod, and you have Philip, and so on. And all these can be verified and dated from sources outside of the Bible. And they happen to be exactly when Luke said they were. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor of the time. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor in control of Judea. Herod and Philip were two sons of Herod the Great, the, the, the king that was um, over 
the region when Jesus was born and the one that, that sent troops to kill the babies in Bethlehem. So this Herod, this Herod Antipas, and Philip were sons of that Herod called Herod the Great. And they were somewhat figureheads. Um, they could be rulers as long as they did everything that Rome told them to do. And they could not be called kings. That's the only thing. They, they were called tetrarchs, which is another term for rulers. Uh, Herod Antipas was killed once he decided to be called king. Uh, Rome said, nope. And he was gone at that time. And notice the religious leaders too. Caphas. Caphos are the official high priests of the time. These are the guys that actually uh, um, led the trials of Jesus during that Thursday night to Friday when he's being tried by the Jewish courts, the Sanhedrin. These two guys, Caiaphas and Annas, led those, those trials. Caiaphas was the official high priest. Annas, however, was, had the recognition of the people as the right, rightful high priest. Annas had just been uh, taken out of office by the Romans just because the Romans didn't like him. But the people didn't recognize that ability, and they considered, considered Annas uh, still the high priest. So Annas and Caiaphas, who, who happened to be Annas' son-in-law, became co-high priests, and that's why you have two high priests listed here. And if you have been following along, you notice that I skipped one name in the list of rulers. Do you notice that? Now, I'll be honest. I skipped Lysanias. If you see there in Luke, you have Lysanias, the king of Abilene, or the ruler of Abilene. And for years, the reference to this ruler was used to prove that Luke made a mistake. Since all the records outside of the Bible said that Lysanias ruled Abilene many years before all these other rulers. That there's no way that uh, Luke was right, because Lysanias preceded these people by about 100 years. See, there are mistakes in the Bible that was shouted from the scholarly rooftop for a long time till an archaeological dig happened and it unearthed an inscription who described a ruler named Lysanias who ruled Abilene during the time of Tiberius, the emperor, Pontius Pilate, the governor, and Philip and Herod, the tetrarchs of the region. And this has happened time and again in history. So-called scholars claim that there are errors in the Bible, and they speak very loudly about that till actual research takes place. And when actual research is done, then there is no, no, no error. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged that what God has given to us in the Bible is true and accurate. Luke, does, goes, Luke goes out of his way here. To give Theophilus, remember he's writing the gospel to this man named Theophilus. To give Theophilus plenty of verifiable evidence. So that Theophilus can see for himself that what he's saying is true. Sure, you can go ahead and deny the Bible. You can go ahead and decide that there are errors in here. But I want you to realize, I want you to acknowledge, and you don't have to say it out, just in your head that if you decide to do that, you're actually taking the irrational route. Because all evidence points to the contrary. All these officers and territories can be checked out, and they are indeed 100% accurate. And that brings us to John the baptizer. As you know, John was a cousin of Jesus. 
uh, some sort of, uh, don't know how distance, but he was a relative of Jesus, even though John was a Levite and Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. We know that from the Annunciation. Remember when the angel showed up to Mary to say that she was going to become pregnant from the Holy Spirit and her baby is going to be God the Son in the flesh. And she said, one of the, ev- the angel said, one of the evidences that this is true is that your cousin or relative Elizabeth is also pregnant and she's six months ahead of you in her pregnancy. So John, the son of Elizabeth, was related to Jesus, the son of Mary. And John was about six months older than Jesus. John was an outcast of society. People didn't really like him. The leaders didn't like him. In, uh, John, in Luke 7, 33, we read, uh, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. So that's, that's Jesus speaking. said, you did not receive him. He, he was not accepted by society. He was an outcast. You know, the uh, camel clothing and long hair and so on may not have helped, but he is primarily because of his message. He may have been a Nazarite, it's really impossible to confirm that, but there was a particular vow that uh, you would take in the Old Testament. One thing we didn't realize is that John had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. And it seems that at least Andrew, James, and John were disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. So, and, and, and the indication is that there were more of the disciples of Jesus that were first disciples of John, and John came to fulfill the office of Elijah, prophesied in Malachi, and both in Malachi and Isaiah. We know that the Mark in chapter one quotes Malachi directly, and we read Malachi four in our responsive reading this morning. It says, "Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord." And that Elijah is John the Baptist, and. We'll Look at that in just a moment. And he dressed like Elijah, very similar to how Elijah dressed, and his clothes and his diet indicate poverty and connection with Elijah. The times that Elijah are described in First Kings and Second Kings, you have that same vibe as you have when John is described. And John was abrasive as Elijah was. No, he, he rubbed people wrong, uh, the wrong way often as well. And here we find another alleged contradiction. Those who want to disprove the Bible say that John the evangelist, so the fourth gospel, contradicts Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because in John we have these words from Elijah. We have this interaction. John chapter 1, verses 19 and 21, we read this. Now this is the testimony of John, talking about John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? Then John said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So, John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. And yet, Jesus clarifies how John was Elijah. Some people say, see, there's a contradiction. Some people say in the Bible that John was Elijah, and John himself says he wasn't Elijah. And yet, there's no contradiction. Jesus Christ clarifies that. 
When the people came and asked John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, are you Elijah? What they meant by that, are you literally Elijah coming back? Remember how the story of Elijah ended? By being taken up alive in a chariot to heaven? Well, the people are asking, are you literally Elijah who came back to earth? And John says, no, I'm not that. I'm not a reincarnation of Elijah. But Jesus says that John came in the same spirit, in the same function as Elijah. As Elijah. In that way, he was Elijah. So Jesus says in Matthew 11, if you're willing to receive it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Elijah, or John the Baptist, the prophet, who's prophesied. And not only the reference to Elijah tells us that John the Baptist was a prophet, but also the way he's introduced. In, in Luke 3, verse 2, it says, While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. If you go back and look at the Old Testament prophets, often that's how they begin. The word of God came to whatever the prophet. And that's just a standard way to express prophetic utterance. And as we read about John, we have this impression he had an itinerant ministry along the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. They would go up and down the, the, to, to all the way down to the, to the Dead Sea and up to the Jordan in around Judea. So John was a prophet, but he also was a prophet who preached Look back in Matthew. We can go back to Matthew 3 for a moment. And you see there in verse 3 of Matthew 3 that John was prophesied about and he was going to have a particular message. In verse 3 says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of the one in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And Luke is quoting, or Matthew is quoting, uh, Isaiah 40, in saying this is John. John the Baptist is doing what Isaiah 40 is talking about. And as you remember, Isaiah 40 begins with a call from God to the prophet to comfort his people and to present their God to them. Remember how Isaiah 40 begins? Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. And then verse 9 says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the, the cities of Judah, behold your God. And that was the ministry of, of John the Baptist. That was the preaching of John the Baptist to point to the Christ. Remember later on, as we're going to see, that when Jesus finally made a public entrance into the ministry, remember what John did? He said, behold... See, pay attention to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of uh, the world. That was the message of John. John's message and ministry fit in the context of Isaiah chapter 40. Through his preaching, John was making the way straight for the coming of the Lord so that all flesh would see the salvation of God. Not literally, no, he didn't work for the city of Tumwater covering potholes. That's not what... John the Baptist did. The idea of making um, straight means preparing the way, removing what seemed unremovable so that the Messiah could come and make the salvation of God clear to every everyone. J.C. Rowell says, He, the Messiah, graciously sent a mighty forerunner before his face by whose ministry the attention of the whole nation was awakened. John came 
to bring the attention of the nation back to the Messiah. And then he said, this is the Messiah, not me. Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. Another important thing concerning this quote from Isaiah 40 and other quotes that we'll encounter in this series is how these texts applied applied to Jesus. In Isaiah 40, it says that this messenger is going to make the way straight, the path smooth for the coming of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is just an English way to refer to the proper name of God, Yahweh, the, God, the name that God revealed himself to us. So here in Isaiah 40, a light of this prophet is coming, and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord, of Yahweh. And yet in, John, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this prophet is coming to prepare the way for Jesus. Same passage. Putting two and two together there, what do we conclude? That Yahweh of Isaiah 40 is the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels. So when we read about Jesus and what he's doing in the Gospels, we are reading about God and what he is doing. One and the same. God and man in one person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And John's message that was going to move the seemingly unmovable. Remember, he is making the mountains short and the valleys up so that the way of the Lord is, is, is smooth. Now, not literally, but in a figurative way. The message that's going to do that, the message that's going to move, the move what seemed to be unmovable is a simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see that in Matthew 3, verse 2. The preparation that Israel had to go through in order to enter the reign of the Messiah was repentance. That's what was required of them. It wasn't simply to be really good on your own strength. It wasn't to be born into a certain pedigree. It was simply repent so that you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Later on in this gospel, Matthew will bring up the narrow gate. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about this narrow gate. And Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Brothers and sisters, the narrow gate is the entrance to the kingdom of heaven, which is the same as the kingdom of God. We're going to see that in another sermon. And the key that opens that gate is repentance. And that's why it's difficult. Not because it takes a lot of effort. Because it takes dying to ourselves. Repentance. D.A. Carson says this concerning repentance. What is meant by repentance is not merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action, including overtones of grief, which results in fruit in keeping with repentance. That's all that God requires of people to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the key that unlocks the narrow gate. Our Shorter Catechism in question 87 asks, what is repentance unto life? And says, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of his, the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose 
of an endeavor after new obedience. And now more than ever, John sees a greater urgency to this message because the kingdom of heaven is about to come in the person of its king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reign of the the Messiah is about to begin, and John sees that, and he proclaims the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My friends, there is no less urgency now than was in the days of John the Baptist. And the key to the gate that opens the kingdom of heaven remains the same. If you're not, if you have not walked through that gate, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for the absolute forgiveness of your sins, do it now. There's no need, no reason to delay. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Enter through the great while the gate still is still available. For there will be a time when you're going to knock on that gate and the one inside will say, Depart from me, for I have never known you. And for those of you who are trusting Christ and have joyfully walked through the gate of the kingdom, continue to live a life of repentance. Continue to grow in hatred for your own sin and love for Jesus who has forgiven you. Continue to turn away from sin and self and turn to Jesus Christ so that, life that, so that the life that you now live is not you living, but Christ living in you. Brothers and sisters, kingdom living is a life of repentance. And this message wasn't just John's. This is the same sermon that Jesus preached for the first time. If you were to go one chapter over to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus introduced, and the first words that come from his mouth is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Brothers and sisters, revival will come to the church when God's people live lives of repentance. That's when revival will come. That's what makes the gospel winsome to others. That's when Jesus will disciple the nations. When you and I, as God's people, live lives of repentance. J.C. Ryle, an evangelical bishop in the Church of England in the 1800s, said this, In the very hour when a Roman emperor and ignorant, and, and ignorant high priests seemed to have everything at their feet, the Lamb of God was about to come forth from Nazareth and set up the beginnings of his kingdom. What he has done once, he can do again. In a moment, he can turn his church's midnight into the blaze of noonday. And that will happen when you and I are living lives of repentance. The result of his preaching was that many came to repentance and were baptized. In verse 6 of chapter 3 of Matthew says, and were baptized, so um, verse 5, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, does Matthew mean every single inhabitant of Judea, every single inhabitant of Jerusalem? No, he's talking about a multitude of people came to him to be baptized by, by him. 
So the result of his preaching was that many came to repentance and were baptized. Somebody asked me last week or the week before, how did John know that he was supposed to baptize? Well, how John knew that he was supposed to baptize, we don't know. Since neither the scriptures nor Jewish tradition tied baptism to repentance. The baptism was common in Jewish tradition, but it was as a cleansing ritual, not as a, a sign of repentance. Perhaps he received a direct revelation from God to know that he was supposed to baptize. And another thing to keep in mind is that this baptism of John is not the same baptism that the Christian church practices today. When you're baptized here, you're not getting baptized with the same sort of baptism as John. I'm not, I'm not talking about the way or the water, but what it signifies. And we know that because when Paul got to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, he met a, a, a group of believers and he asked them, what do you know? Well, well, the only thing we know is the baptism of John. And Paul then went, again, went ahead and baptized them with Christian baptism. So whatever John's baptism was, was not what we do today. And whatever else it was, this baptism was a sign of conviction of sin, and the whole region was catching John's fire. And in that way, he was preparing everyone to see the Lamb of God who was about to manifest himself that was going to take away the sins of the world. So John the baptizer came to prepare the way of the Christ so that all flesh would see the salvation of God. And he accomplished his mission, and Christ has come. And to you, Christ says, repent and enter my kingdom. Have you done that? Are you willing to do that? And are you willing to live a life of repentance? Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the faithful ministry of John the Baptist. We thank you for the preparation for the way of our Savior. We thank you that our Savior has come. We pray that we would take heed to the message of repentance and that we live a life of repentance. For us in Jesus' name, amen.